welcome to Directly Correct, a people Inc. podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Doug Shagum, head of people, data, and insights at Johnson & Johnson. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. Well, one, you have two varieties. I found the place that will do $20 haircuts and everywhere else is like, these haircuts are getting expensive. Like there's places like $85 for a haircut for a dude. Like, like a like, basic guy haircut is $80. Generic haircut. And like, you know, like for a guy, like, after three days, you can't really tell a good haircut from a bad haircut. And after two weeks, it really doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Well, that's what? that's way expensive. <laughs> like I, I, I found a place uh, over by the university, UW, and uh, it's 20 bucks because I'm a basic bitch, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And uh, it's funny because I'd gone there before and there's like one guy I didn't want to get. And luckily he walked through and like someone else was in line to get him. You know, you do like the yeah. lineup sort of thing, like you're a prisoner, just kind of get who you get. Anyway, I got this guy I hadn't gotten before, and he spent probably like five minutes, like using the comb and like just trying to find like I don't know the curvature of my head. I don't know, <laughs> like parting it and like typically or some of the best haircuts I've gotten, they've been done in five minutes, right? Yeah. So I'm like, here's what I want, here's sort of thing. He's like, yeah, I got you, no big deal. And he kind of cut it up. And he's like, take it forever. And like the, the people are like going through the chairs next to me. I'm like, that guy's been like through three haircuts. Like, <laughs> you're still cutting my hair. Like I'm about to be, get the best haircut of my life. And then like, he's like, you know, whips the cape off. He's like, ha ha. And I was like, this isn't really what I asked for at all, but I'm, I'm glad that you're impressed. But I just want to get the fuck out of here. Like, I mean, it so does look pretty to- good. He, he did do a good job, but uh <laughs> Well, it's not what we talked about exactly, but he kind of followed the pattern. So is it like a salon or is it a barbershop or is it something else? No, no, no. This is, uh, it's a straight up barbershop and it's, it's old school barbershop. Uh, it's actually really neat on the inside. We'll, we'll just give some plugs like university barbers mm-hmm. buys UW campus, something like that. And like on the inside, it's like all mirrors. So it's like really wild sort of experience to be in this like yeah. all mirror place. But they have like the Seahawks game on, like way too loud. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I guess because the guy can't hear it, he's like, you know, uh, clipping hair, this sort of thing. But uh, yeah, interesting experience. Like overall satisfied and definitely be a return customer. Just like very yeah, I, I had interesting old, experience. I had an old barber um, and he had made an invention. And so every time I went, he was an old, old guy. So he didn't remember he told you the story every time we went. So he wanted to tell me about his invention. <laughs> every time i went in and it was a thing that sucks the hair out after it clips so it doesn't get on the ground right like he invented like a vacuum cleaner it was literally a vacuum cleaner that he hooked it up to it (laughs) and he's like i've been selling this thing have you heard of it i was like yeah every single time i've come in here (laughs) you talk tell me like and the other thing is why are you trying to sell it to me if i buy it and i take it home i'm not going to use you anymore do do you remember like the flow bee it was like actually like a vacuum cleaner and a hair attachment that like cut your hair at the same time. I mean, it was a real vacuum. Um, it, I think this is a little bit more low tech than a Flovey. I know what you're talking about, though. Mm-hmm. Like, 
It was effective though. I'll give him that. You didn't leave itchy at all. That that is a real pain. Yeah. Like, like double entendre there. I mean, like it is a real pain to like walk around like goddamn. It's like especially the back of the neck and it gets oh, down yeah. the back of your shirt and you're like you itch the rest of the day. It's like this is terrible. Or if you're like me, you go home and like lay down in your bed. Now you just like <laughs> get itchy all night. Yeah. Oh man, that's the worst. I I would learn how to cut hair just to save the 20 30 bucks a month well that's what we do now <laughs> and uh it's not good looking but like you said two weeks later <laughs> two weeks later nobody can tell the difference i i would say for a kid like worst case scenario you just like give him a buzz cut and like you'd be like go on with your life no one cares this sort well, of especially thing. in the summertime man a buzz cut in the summertime saves you on so much heat like your oh, body, yeah. I don't know if you feel it, but like, I feel like my hair keeps in so much heat in my head. Having a buzz cut feels the best <laughs> in the summer. Uh, That's wild that your hair is insulating your little dome there. Yeah. I think it's just I sweat a lot through my hair. I don't know. I, I, pr- I appreciate a good buzz cut. Like, I don't, I don't know if I actually look good in it, but man, it, it feels, it feels right. When you're a kid, it's like, who cares, you know? Well, hell, I mean, like, I had one during COVID. During COVID, I had probably, like, the longest and shortest hair of my life just because, like, it's like, I'm just going to cut my hair. Like, remember the early stages where nothing was open? Yeah. Like, I had a pair of clippers and, like, shit was out of control. So, here we go. Go to the bathroom. Give yourself a haircut. Leave, like, a little... You're not sure. Higher strip than other areas, this sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Look insane. I feel like the buzz cut... You're either, you know, in a desperation mode, you're a neo-Nazi, or you're about to kill yourself. <laughs> like, one of those things is going on. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a signal of problems. It's kind of like an <laughs> yeah. up, up, upside-down flag in some respects. You know, it's <laughs> like, things are not going right in some like, well. Not sure what signals are being sent here. <laughs> it's like someone with, like, aggressive uh, faith piercings or something like that you're like i don't know what you're going on in your life but there's a lot going on here yeah, it's like you have an excessive need for holes you just want some holes in your body i will say that i went on a date with a girl that had like just came from a haircut she had like hair all over her shoulders and shit mm-hmm. i'm like this ain't gonna work well this is bad that's kind of nasty it was so nasty nice yeah person. i was like i mean i'm pretty like flexible when it comes to like if somebody's got a good personality and we're vibing and all that like if we were on like a date but you got you're literally like covered in hair yeah it literally <laughs> like yeah. i'm not i'm that's not that's not a good thing no <laughs> i think i'm gonna have to say no to this oh man have you ever gotten like a high-end haircut when he's like 85 dollar deals no i think so that's why i asked the salon question yeah, because yeah. I feel like a salon is like, oh, yeah, you got to pay extra. A barbershop, if they're charging you more than $40, they need to change their name because they're not a barbershop anymore. I like barbershop culture. In, in Ruston, it felt like everywhere would have like a straight razor and they'd finish you off with a straight razor. That's true. I mean, I guess that's not, I guess that's not a thing everywhere. I have not seen that other places. Okay. What's up, Doug? How you doing, man? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. We got some good barbershop talk going on here. I, I, I was just thinking, I love a straight razor shave. Okay. It's one of like the best joys in life, I think. It, it doesn't feel, feel so decadent, right? Like, 
You're living right. When, when I used to years like early career, uh, spend some time working in Wall in the Wall Street area. There used to be this place where you would go and it wasn't just for men, but it certainly specialized in men. You had this huge like lounge chair. You'd get a straight razor shave. You'd oh, get yeah. you'd get your uh, haircut. You'd get a manicure for like forty bucks or something like that. And I'd be like, "Dude, every two weeks I'm going. This is the best treatment ever." Is this like a mafia hangout? I mean, it's no, only- it was legit. <laughs> uh, well, I shouldn't know. Maybe for an extra, I think, couple of bucks, you get they give you a beer. Like it was, it was a great hang. So. Well, I was actually thinking about you earlier this week because uh, I was watching uh, the movie. Well, I'm not going to say the name of it. I want to guess. I think I know what your favorite movie is, and um, because you were how would you know this a drums player at Juilliard, and I was watching the movie Whiplash. Is that your favorite movie? It is. It is, and there's a whole lot of it that's true. That is, that is very <laughs> the true. biography of your life. <laughs> I, I I have had more, um, let's see, erasers, uh, drumsticks, uh, things thrown at me. I've had, um, oh yeah, I, I I've had um, a conductor take off his shoes and start banging them together, literally um, next to my ear to keep the, to keep the beat going. Oh wow. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah! It's a, it's a real pleasure. Well, like I mean, I, I haven't seen this Whiplash movie. Like, what are we talking about? Like timpani drums, or like uh... he ends up playing the drum set. Uh, most people start out learning just one, usually the snare drum, and then they move to the bass drum, and then sometimes people will play the other percussive instruments, like a xylophone, a timpani, or other things. And uh, and yeah, I could do it all. Um, I went to I went to school for yeah. quite a while to do some of that stuff, but yeah, Whiplash. Uh, and by the way, amazing song choices in yeah. there. Yeah, it was some really good. Life. It's good music. I mean, straight up. But like in the movie, Scott. So the, the 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 main character is like a drummer, and then there's this um, this conductor guy who's just a complete like psychopath. <laughs> yeah. He's like teaching them how to like play the drums, and it's just a really good movie. You should check it out sometime. Really. You, you you really should. It it is phenomenal. It truly is a phenomenal movie. It won uh, a whole bunch of awards, right? It did. I when don't... it first came out, it was like I don't know if it won an Oscar <laughs> or not, but it was like one of the best films that year. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I'm not gonna pull up Wikipedia, but like I know it won a whole bunch of, of awards and. Uh, like I don't know, it certainly re-sparked my like. Oh, I remember this, and I lived this a long time, and yeah. it was fun. I mean, sure, you got beaten up, but y'all saw. <laughs> That's yeah. how you knew we had a good time, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. come on, everybody pays attention to the drummer. That's how I got started, right? I mean, I watched a guy, and there are a bunch at the time of women who who only had the who were all watching him, and I'm like, dude, I, I, I can do that. Why not? Right? I didn't yeah. know any better. 
I always felt like the drummers were the crazy guys. Are you a crazy guy, Doug? I like to have fun. I definitely <laughs> like to have fun. Let, let's just say that um, uh, the reason I'm not Dr. Shagum is my BAC was a bit higher than my GPA. Uh, <laughs> I was a I was a drummer in a punk band, Doug, and like I never never had a lesson, and it probably goes to show you like how good the skills. Do you need was. that in a punk band? <laughs> Not really, but I, I loved it because like you kind of had like something to hide behind. Like you you were up there, but you had like this like protective drum kit around you. In my case, like a four piece. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have was it was it like special did you just have like a snare a bass a tom it, it was a, a tama art star and it I had a uh, a bass uh a single tom and a floor tom two uh mm-hmm. crashes and a ride nice and, and of course a hi-hat well yeah of this is a question for me to know how hardcore you were scott did you have a double bass pedal I, I bought a double bass pedal, but never figured out how to actually do it. I, I didn't oh, never. It's easy. The... It's easy. <laughs> the actual well, coordination never came to me. Well, we'll have to have an offline lesson on how to use Let's do a, it. A, a double bass pedal, or sometimes they have the ones that I prefer, which is you still use the double bass pedal, but only have one bass drum. So you can get the benefit of having the double bass sound and you can still keep your hats closed. Or, I or, mean, I think that's what uh, John Bonham had, right? Or actually he had, he had two, I guess it depends on which concert you're looking at. Yeah. Exactly. But I, I will say the uh, first uh, intro to good times, bad times, first Led Zeppelin song, first album, listen to like the first 30 seconds and just listen to the bass drums. You're like, Oh my God, this guy's on a different planet. Oh, different planet Com- completely I, I i was in the seventh grade i think maybe eighth i i don't know i was a kid 14 15 years old i got invited with with a buddy of mine he's like hey why don't we go to this battle of the beats competition and i'm like uh <laughs> sure why don't we I have like a year of experience doing this and uh everybody had to play the same song i'd never heard of it before a song called rosanna by you know, Toto. Rosanna. Yeah, Rosanna. exactly. Yeah. Well, little did I know that the drum part by Jeff Ricaro <laughs> was one of the hardest beats to actually play. It's it's super. Uh, it's some people very incredibly complicated. It's not nearly as hard when you break it down. But I'd never heard of it before. I'm not a young guy, so you're looking at two dudes who were tr- who were holding that yellow Walkman, one earbud in one ear, one earbud in the other person's yeah, yeah, yeah. ear. And uh, yeah, I, w- I won a Yamaha recording custom drum set. Look there at you, you go. Stuff. Look at you. That's some yeah. high stuff. It was. It was fun. It was, it was great. It was a great time. <laughs> well, were you up in Boston this week? I was. I, um, I don't know how they let me on campus. They must have... <laughs> What they, they just, I was at MIT presenting okay. uh, on some of the research work that we did uh, that they wrote a research paper on for their CISR, the Center for Innovation and Scientific Research uh, stuff. Uh, I, I, again, 
I don't know if they just check like available credit that you have on your credit cards, <laughs> or they let anybody up in here. Because yeah. clearly, it's not GPA or diplomas. Because yeah. <laughs> what, what what was the research about? So it was how we used NLP and machine learning to be able to look at skills passively at scale. Interesting. And uh, this is a board that really focuses on how to use data as an asset and how to create value from that data. So wait, you're deriving skills from what kind of data? So think of everything that would be within an employee's footprint. So when I say an employee's footprint, think about your HRIS workday as an example. You have Uh an annual performance review, right? I hope. Hopefully you're tracking things like start date, end date, promotions, lateral moves, all those types of events, those go in there. Think about if you're a programmer or you're involved in data science, you probably have a GitHub repository or some version thereof, right? Um, We look at assessment data uh, that is used throughout somebody's life cycle. Training, recognition and reward data. So all these different types of data sets that we look at, and especially performance reviews where you have an opportunity to shine with mm-hmm. what you have contributed. And of course, your manager has reinforced, oh, yeah, you did this or no, not so much. So that went uh, really well because from a, first of all, employee transparency standpoint, everybody knew what they were using. So getting mm-hmm. buy-in and then the the promotion of it was really focused on letting people understand the why. And the why was we want to know and let everybody know what we're playing for. What are we playing for? These 13 capability areas, these 55 skills. Okay. And and what we said, and those came from long-range financial plans, strategic plans. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we offered up first and most importantly was, look, we're only going to provide this to you. You will always see this data. You have a chance to see how you rate yourself and how an algorithm rates yourself. How, how an algorithm rates you. And, Do you uh, find big deltas between the two? Very close initially. Uh, okay. We look at we look at agreement score, which is plus or minus one mm-hmm. out of a five point scale. And uh, I mean, you know, social science, right? 70 percent, pretty good. We were right. Well, self ratings are notoriously the least reliable type of ratings. That's why I asked. <laughs> and so I was wondering, you know, you probably get all the different kinds of uh, of bias that goes on there. But uh, are people, I guess, who do you trust? Like, do you trust the algorithmic ratings more or the self ratings more? The algorithmic ratings is what we go for, and that's what we compare against. And we find the largest bias is actually with manager, or we found was with manager rating. And that was primarily because of, honestly, the fact that many managers don't necessarily have as much information about their employees or the technical yeah. depth per se that some of their employees had. Yeah. I mean, they have limited exposure to what they're asking their employees to do as well. It's like kind of a one-way conversation, in a lot of circumstances, right? So they have that sort of aspect. Uh, 
I mean, with that said, like what, what kind of skills are most important to performing the job? Obviously, we have a million different jobs and a million different contexts, this sort of thing. But are there some like core skills that you're finding in the data that are most predictive of future success? It's typing, isn't it? It's definitely typing. <laughs> you know, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't typing. Typing is typing skills. Typing, uh, you have to be Curtain. able to successfully keeping a beat. You, you, you have to be able to navigate Teams, Slack, and text messaging all at the same time. That'll we all know ready. multitasking isn't real. Oh, God. Yeah. It's not? I had no idea. I, oh, okay. I had no idea. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Um, yeah. we, we, uh, we also found that, um, you know, fun things. Is that, a, is that a real skill, like being able to manage all these different communication mediums? No, no. Okay, okay, I, good. The world makes sense I was, again. I was riffing off of, of typing. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but that is important. Uh, no question about it. I, I feel inundated by all these different sources, and people are like, "Well, that Slack you." Is like, I don't I haven't checked into Slack in like two days. Like, well, like I, I emailed you. Like, oh god, damn! Now I gotta look at that. Yeah, I I, I often feel like, oh, I sent you, people. Will, oh, I sent you a Teams message. Uh, oh, I should have checked Teams. I was just looking at Outlook. Um, Wait, have you guys done any research along those lines around like productivity and the amount of, um, you know, distractions that go into it and like focus time or anything like that? So we're just starting out on that journey. In fact, we, really? uh, we deployed micro, we, we deployed, uh, Viva insights, uh, both at the individual and manager, which provides aggregate views. And, um, besides knowing how much time I spend during teams meetings, not necessarily doing uh, work just focused on that meeting, but doing other things, despite the fact that, of course, I would never multitask during a meeting. Um, what I, uh, what we're starting to see is some, some anecdotal evidence, but we need more. We need to be able to explore. We need to be able to see, and obviously patterns are what matters. So that's what we're starting to see and what, what kind of outcomes, especially as project teams start evolving more and more rather than just you know i'm a part of this organization as project mm-hmm. teams start to evolve how does that play into all of this yeah i mean like it, it, as, as we move into this sort of like further into this digital future uh these sort of like technical skills feel like they're going the way especially in the same way that like crystallized intelligence is going away or the need mm-hmm. for it and I, I think we're gonna have like two sort of like fungible skill sets that are really important moving forward like one is this idea that you need to be able to uh, brainstorm and collaborate with others, generate ideas, because like even like Gen AI can only do so much with the information that's put into it. Mm-hmm. The other is like the ability to sell ideas, which is a different skill set, but going to be like wildly important. Oh my goodness! Yeah, if if you are not a successful storyteller, and being able to tell a compelling message, you're going to fail automatically doesn't matter if you have all the brains, mm-hmm. you have the greatest ideas, but if you can't communicate them effectively, be able to persuade and uh, I would even argue be able to 
use the word sell, but I I would say, you know, drive consensus, get everybody to see the same yeah. view of what's in it. You know, the, uh, the old Influence. radio station, the old inf- uh, radio station with them, what's in it for me, value mm. case, right? Like <laughs> uh, that, that sort of, everybody's got that radio station programmed in, trust me. Sure. Uh, that, that's super, super critical. And you've got to have some technical know-how because you got to know your area. You got to know your mm. subject, right? But I would argue Less so on the technical side in many cases and more so on that other side, that being able to be a great storyteller, being able to tell a compelling message and getting that point across. So you've got that consensus. You've got that buy-in and support. Well, Scott, I actually want to come back to you. Um, Why? why, Because basically what you said was like collaborating and selling. Mm -hmm. Why why those two things? Why not other things? And what, what kind of took you to that conclusion? Just out of curiosity. Uh, so obviously we have a new generative AI that can do a lot of those mm-hmm. sort of, uh, technical tasks where you can write code, this sort of thing. Doug does bring up a good point of, you do need like technical expertise, say like business, industry specific knowledge yep. or company specific company knowledge, specific, to, yeah. this sort of thing. But as we move more into sort of like a network society, networked organizational structures, Gen AI can only do so much and it, it can only produce mm-hmm. insights from its training models where I think the real power of humans is being able to connect the dots outside of those training model training models or get anecdotes from people in real time and be able to work that into their own sort of, uh, mm, I don't know, uh, ideas and uh, mm-hmm. how, how to move forward and uh, evolve, et cetera. I feel like I'm rambling now. But essentially, you need to be able to brainstorm these sort of ideas. And to Doug's point also, somebody needs to be able to influence and sell those ideas. It's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to sell them. Yeah, No, I get it. Well, it was interesting because I I texted you something earlier this week, and I I should have sent it to you, Doug, too, that there was this research that came out that showed that generative AI can't extrapolate beyond its training data. Because one of the things we had talked about before on the podcast is like, can generative AI create a truly new idea beyond just what has already been ideas that have already been had in the past? And some, I I think it was researchers from Google. I'll have to like find the link that I sent. I'll put it in the show notes. But um, basically found that at least upon the evidence that they had looked at that generative AI actually can't. It can't can't go beyond that. And so I think that's a really fundamental... Um, piece of data that we've been needing ever since this new revolution that's occurred. So that was that was really interesting. That is really interesting. I mean, it has all sorts of implications because you look at Gen AI output and you think like, oh my God, <laughs> this thing is thinking and clearly it's not. When it actually gets to your point you're making, Scott, about, okay, well then we have to have humans collaborating to generate ideas and then selling those ideas. So it's absolutely related. And and could I get a little bit of shout out that Gen AI is super cool and has tremendous potential, but it can't solve everything today. Look at mm-hmm. that. Wet towel Doug coming out. Love it, man. Tell us more. <laughs> right? I mean, look. Preach. I'm a huge fan of gen ai i'm a huge fan of tech in general i mean that's it's part of my it's it's 
Yeah. It's passion, right? But like, you know, I think we have we have some folks in different parts of not just an organization, but even classes that I teach that are like, oh, I can have Gen AI do this. And I'm like, uh, well, sort of, kind of, but do you want to learn anything? Right? Like, you know, uh, sure, it could write, you know, assignment number two, but then again, maybe you want to learn that for future use or things like, you know, there's going to be chat GPT five and six and seven and eight. It's going to get better. It's going to constantly improve. And yeah, it's good, but it's always based on what both of you already mentioned, right? What it's what it has learned fundamentally. Right. And sort of like Wikipedia in some cases, right? The sources are always as good as they are. We hope there are to be very, very good sources. It can produce some outstanding results, but it can't necessarily solve world hunger. It can't mm-hmm. necessarily do some things that people have imaginative ideas upon just yet. Yeah, it's definitely not good at making sandwiches to solve that world hunger. It's, it's very <laughs> it's notoriously bad. I, I am curious, Doug, so... You mentioned your students. Are, are you teaching right now? I do. So I'm tremendously privileged. I teach at Columbia University, at NYU, and at Lehigh University. I teach both people analytics and strategic workforce planning. Well, I mean, as this uh, uh, esteemed professor that you are, how do you incorporate <laughs> Gen AI into like the curriculum? Because kids are going to use it. And it, it is a tool, to your point earlier. It's not the only tool. And you do have some erosion of skills on the back end by using it. H- how do you approach it? We do. And I should point out, I am far from an esteemed professor. <laughs> uh, but but uh, but thank you. I appreciate the, the at least uh, notion thereof. Um, so it's, it's a pretty simple approach right now, candidly. It's one of, we ask that students, if they use generative AI, that they source that and they note it. And we also make sure that during courses, during classes, during exercises, that there is no chat GPT. We'll have a breakout for 20 minutes. Uh, Yeah. We'll have students actually practice things like, oh, chi-square, where here's the problem, right? Here's the data. Here's the formula. Now, we'll give you the formula in Excel. We're not going to make you use R. We'll make it simple for you, right? But you can't just throw that into ChatGPT with the right prompts and get the answer. I got a question related to this. Hold on. When's the last time either of you guys used a chi-square out in the wild? Within the year. Real? Okay. I, yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm making a confession here. Never used one in the wild. Not That's even fair. once. That's fair. It, it, it's a very specialized sort of um, analysis. Um, specifically related to uh, uh, survival curves. I, I yeah. had to break one out for survival curves. 
Well, yeah, I guess like in like SEM, SEM models, you have like a chi-squares and output. I just meant like a literally there's four boxes and you did a chi-square to see if there was differences between the four boxes. <laughs> I've never been like, how many different uh, mild sauces did I get from Taco Bell versus hot sauces? Yeah, that's a good one. I, maybe I could use that in class. I was going to say other than class, yeah, not so much. But I'm thinking that may be a good option versus oh, yeah. the more traditional one we have to use from the EOC. So I like that. That's, that's, a, that's a much better option. Plus, I'm sure students are passing that one around anyway. So, <laughs> look for a bunch of Columbia students coming out and understand how to apply the chi square to Taco Bell sauces <laughs> in the near future. Everyone, it's coming. Get ready. <laughs> I, I had this strange experience the other day because I got invited to be a guest speaker at Columbia's course, and Doug really? Doug wasn't the professor. And then, like, I'm looking around in the Zoom, and it's like, Doug, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> I thought he was one of the students. It's like, oh, no, I'm just in here like as I help out with the Columbia program. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I was an associate in that course. So uh, so uh, a different lecture was, was yeah. presenting. Um, well, let's I give do... her a shout out, Michael Moon. Michael Moon, yeah. People analytics person who I've interviewed in the past. She's amazing. Love her. She's awesome. I was, uh, she's fantastic. She's great. Um think super highly of michael and like you said cole she's she's very well known very well uh, liked in the fields as well no question about it um but yeah that's when we use it right i mean that's what it was but it was pretty funny cole's like doug doug (laughs) (laughs) are are you are you you auditing this class like for reason no 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 um I'm here to answer questions and help students who have trouble figuring out some like basic concepts. And they call this uh, Columbia. They, they, some students consider this the organic chemistry of their master's degree in capital management. I can't make that up. Can't make that up. It's not, I've taken organic chemistry. It's not. (laughs) Actually, I've taken it twice. It's not. <laughs> well, I mean, like you're you're invited to these universities to talk and uh, MIT, et cetera. Like, how do you keep up with things? I mean, there's so much to keep up with. Yeah, seriously. You know, it's about the relation. It goes back to those relationships, right? It goes back to being able to chat with great leaders, to chat with friends, to be able yeah. to to. You know, it's more than just a LinkedIn post uh, that you know, will get you knowledge because of course you can go there. The conferences are okay. Right. Uh, but it's more about the, the hallway conversations, keeping up with things. It's that stuff that always excites me, intrigues me. And I love getting the, the random, you know, message of, Hey, why don't we connect for 30 minutes? Those are my favorites. I, I think this is Cole's superpower. Absolutely. Like he meets with so many people and just gets exposed to so much people and like knowledge. It's wildly impressive. 
Yeah, people assume that like I have like a like, secret wisdom and knowledge. I was like, nah, man. I just hear people complain all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wait, wait. You don't have all this super secret knowledge? Uh, I mean, yes, I do. That's uh, why I'm here. Yeah. Before you even there for a second, I apologize. Well, speaking of like secret knowledge, it's actually how we kind of kicked this whole thing off. Doug is you had made a post on LinkedIn about quality of hire a while back, and then. We got into this whole like circle talking about it. Do you want to talk about quality of hire at all? Yeah, sure. So, so you know, I, I did a little bit of planning before this. Ten months ago, you know, we were at a at a point of inflection, right? Everybody's focused on in the past on what they're focused on retention. Oh my goodness, right? The the mm-hmm. the great retention, the the. Well, you can fill in the blank. There's so many variations on that theme. But what we realized was, well, that's in the past. What's coming next, right? Ooh, and yeah. you, you've, you've probably heard, right, um, an expression. It's mostly attributed to, to, um, to someone who, uh, to Warren Buffett, who actually didn't say this. It was actually somebody else who told Warren this about hogs get slaughtered if they're not paying attention to what, if they get too greedy. Pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. Exactly, right? And that's that's in investments. But what we realized was, you know, there's going to be a time when we really need to double down on talent and Mm -hmm. how we think about talent acquisition as an organization. Now, I don't know about any of you guys, but I have never had like a seamless, perfect, amazing talent acquisition journey. Have you? I mean, what what, what do you mean by that? Like they're not, it's not fun to go through talent acquisition, generally speaking. I mean, from... How you get sourced to the interview process through assessments, through, you know, different types of, obviously, the interviews, through the eventual clear to hire. Here's your start date. And oh, by the way, on your starting date, your manager's there, your laptop's there, everything's there. You have like a welcome to fill in the blank company Mm -hmm. lined up. Maybe you have a buddy, all that kind of stuff. Have you ever had that before? It's rare, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, usually it's, people are saying like, oh, bear with us. We're getting this figured out. Um, sorry, your we'll get, experience is terrible, but you know, we'll figure it out next time kind of thing. We'll get you a laptop in three weeks. Yeah. I, I was going to say, right? Yeah. And uh, has it ever happened in like less time than a couple of weeks at a minimum? From uh, initial approach, From initial- right? Oh, yeah. no, 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 it's not. never fast. Yeah. So now I want you to think about a big bureaucratic. I feel like you're leading us somewhere, Doug. Where yeah, are you yeah. leading us? We're going down the road. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, J&J is a story company, right? 150 years plus in operation. And we realized, like, if we're going to be competitive, we've got to change things, right? We've got to break down policies. We've got to break down processes. We've got to break down ways of working. And, 
you know what? We got to reevaluate tech and we've got to take it from the lens of three areas from a recruiter standpoint. We've got to take it from a candidate standpoint and from a hiring manager standpoint. That's really what matters. And to overuse a already overused phrase, understand the moments that matter through journey mapping exercises and really start to focus critically there. And uh, that's what a big shift has been for us. And, you know, it started out, as Cole mentioned, 10 months ago by me asking a simple question on LinkedIn that, you know, I thought wisdom of the crowds, right? I have brilliant science, brilliant people answering this question for me. Yeah. I even wrote a whole article about your question. <laughs> he did. And I yeah. still have that, by the way. How do you, well, a link to it. How do you measure quality of hire? Yep. And, um, well, let's disregard the folks. Well, uh, what are you trying to get at? Uh, why does it matter to you? Because, well, come on. We all know quality of hire really does matter, right? But understanding so much more than just some basic things, like, well, do people stay? Do people mm-hmm. get promoted more faster than others? Do people tend to become those um, those real, uh, when you think of, of an organizational network analysis, right? Do they really become those central points of contact over time where they're, as, as I uh, will frequently use the phrase, the mayor, right? They have all this information, they can distribute it, and they're the go-to people, right? And we also want to look at it in different areas, right? Is it different across 3,000 plus jobs 30,000 different positions is it so different in cohorts if i started in one year what if i have a manager who has a different or lower performance rating than a manager who has higher or a larger span of control or a smaller span of control so 67 comments later cole was great he offered up his knowledge, his paper, and quality time with me, which hopefully was well well spent. And uh, we got to a place where we were able to start using this. And it's still a work in progress. It's about an index, and it's using things that are cohort-based that include continuous feedback, that include things like basic new hire failure rate, and other factors like performance assessment and things like that, but also more continuous feedback. One of my favorite questions, and I I know we'll get to this at some point, around around our NPS, we changed NPS uh, that goes out to hiring managers and that goes out Mm -hmm. to, to our candidates. But for hiring managers, it was, did you raise the bar on talent by hiring? Bar raisers, yeah. Right? And then we don't just think about asking that one question to a hiring manager two weeks after they join. But what happens a year from now? And you ask the interview panel that that Mm -hmm. same question. What is that like? 
right? Do they feel like oh, that's interesting? Like- you know, like doing like a after action review. It's like, um, tell us about this score where you rated. <laughs> that, that's funny. I like that. It's yeah. like interviewing the coach after a football game. He's like, what were you thinking, <laughs> you insane person? Right? I mean, I can't break out the X's and O's and whiteboard, right? <laughs> but, but that'd be kind of fun, right? Like that kind of stuff. Because this is, you know, I, I think I think Caldwell said, right, that expected value, right, and the actual mm-hmm. value, right? And, you know, how do we get there and there's so many different data points that you can use and we're a big organization some people don't even have computers or have laptops to get data in some they don't have those typing skills you know that we were looking at earlier they don't they don't Uh, (laughs) but they do have a phone so they 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 can use thumbs or at least as my kids would say Wow, use your thumbs. Can't you use other fingers too? God, Dad. I know. Jeez. I'm I'm a boomer to them, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if you want some expected value, you want to join us in the confusion matrix? Always a pleasure. The confusion matrix. Always. Okay. Cole really loved this last week, so we'll see how this goes with you, Doug. We have one real research article and two fake ones, as described by Gen AI. And your task is to identify the real one, okay? Okay. Pretty simple rules. Okay, so here you go. The first one is golf courses and residential home prices, an empirical examination. This is from the Journal of Property Economics and uh, researchers from the San Diego State University. So golf courses and residential home prices. Okay. Article two is the green conundrum. Paradoxes in Putting Green Design in Neighborhood Ecosystems. This is Journal of Recreational Ecology from Cornell, researchers at Cornell. And finally, four, the impact on errant golf balls on suburban home integrity and insurance prices (laughs) from the International Journal of Sports-Related Finance and Insurance. Uh, out of Cal, Berkeley. So we got... Golf courses and residential home prices. We got putty greens and their impact on neighborhood ecosystems and uh, errant golf balls and insurance policies. Oh, I, I well, know the answer. I know what it, but say I'm going to let Doug go first. Doug's got to go. All right. I'm going to be clear here. I'm going two is false. Putting greens. Putting greens? Putting greens no. is for sure false, but what about one or three? <laughs> You got to make a choice, Doug. Well, I could see golf balls and as being legit. I could see that, but I think it's probably a sponsored study, which I would tend to avoid. So I'm thinking it's going to be those Granted, I'm biased. I have a home on a golf course, but I'm going to go with choice number one. Going number one? Oh, it's got to be number three. It it has to be number three. Okay, here I will. Should should have stuck with my original. Should have stuck. Okay, here's the actual one. Let me put it up. 
Oh, I was wrong. <laughs> it's golf courses and residential home prices. Uh, it's been a few days since I actually read this. But essentially, they uh, matched uh, home sales on golf courses through some sort of algorithm and then found that uh, uh, golf courses add 7.6% to the property value. There you go, Doug. So well done. Well Thank done you. Well done. I, well, I, I hope so. Uh, because there's not much more land left. So I'm have hoping. You ever, have you ever like gone out in the yard and like pretended like a golf ball hit you just to mess with golfers? Anything like that? Oh, uh, we've had so much fun. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, my, my my family's grown up on golf courses. We've lived in Florida on and off for quite some time. So uh, I can't tell you the number of golf balls we have. Uh, when people, cause, <laughs> just people are like, I don't know where my golf ball is. And it's usually because one of my kids already grabbed it and took it away. So that's one fun thing that we like to do. Um, we yell for, for them, right? even though it may not even come in our direction, just for the sake of watching them realize, oh my God, I could have hit somebody. So we've done <laughs> that before as well. And um, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that I may step outside early in the mornings and play a couple of holes before the day begins for free. Oh, heck yes. Just to... Uh, you well, know, you got to do quality control. Quality control, right? Oh, I like that. Yeah. Ooh, I'm yeah. going to start using that now. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing QC. Yeah, yeah. I like Just that. Take some divots to make sure the integrity of the grass is appropriate that morning. I like that. So you're, you're testing the skills of the groundskeeper. Yeah. And the overall management. Overall management. Yeah, I love that. Um. Uh, I will say we've had some fun. We 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 did blame at one point uh, for uh, my my little girl wants to play golf at Stanford. She's a super super. Damn. Uh, yeah, she's good. She's she's good. Yeah, she's very good. Thank you. Um, I'm like just get a degree. When Stanford uh, consistently has, I think, the top female golf team. So that's that's definitely a big uh, a big goal. They they do they do they they have been amazing, but I'm also like just get a degree in computer science too, please. While you're there. <laughs> I don't know, man. If you get like high end golf, that's yeah, get shipped to Mars. It is, it is. I just you know, I don't know. You sort of lay, lean back on, right? Yeah, you know. I mean, computer science, Stanford. While you're there, right? Like. I don't know. Maybe you can fit it in your schedule. <laughs> little, little tutoring extra. I'm not sure. We could work it out, right? I don't know. But yeah, so that's what she wants to do. So she she's a fun player to play with, and uh, and she kicks my butt every time. Like she she's like, "You suck," yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, "You're 15. Are you allowed to say those things?" Right? And uh, like, I gotta play at four in the morning out here. The sun's not even up. Exactly. But uh but it's all in good fun and uh we we've always enjoyed in fact she uh she's great. She 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 was playing and uh she claimed that uh one of the uh tea boxes uh 
it was her lining up, accidentally uh, broke off the end of her of her shaft, of her club. Oh yeah, uh, T boxes have a way of doing that sometimes. <laughs> She's you, a tur- turf monster. Yeah. You would think, right? Uh, so they they replaced the whole thing, and I was completely shocked by that. So. Okay, well, cool. Well, I'm definitely coming to crash your place for the Players' Championship next year, uh, Doug. But would you, would you like to join us in the nerdery? Let's do it. The nerdery. Let's do some nerdery. Well, along the lines of kind of some of the things you were mentioning about talent acquisition and, and like the moments that matter and everything, um, the first article we had um, – is about cyber vetting. Mm. And this is a part of the talent acquisition process. Um, I don't know, Scott, do you want to take us through this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we, we all know what cyber vetting is. So essentially uh, seeing what people's online personas might say about them and then you know, kind of using your Ouija board to divine if they are going to be a good fit for the organization. The article says that 43 to 70% of employers do it. Uh, for Candace, it could cause anxiety about their, you know, online image and for hiring agents, like, is it really an accurate reflection of, uh, Candace overall skill? It's, boy, there's a lot to cover here, uh, in terms well, of, I, I want to like the last point about, is it an accurate reflection of a candidate? What, what are you guys' perspectives on this? Cause I think this is the crux of the issue. So first let me say that from a policy standpoint at J&J, this is not something that we would in- yeah. okay. allow. Or That's good like to that. know. Let, 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 me, let me just start by saying that. But, but secondarily, my personal opinion to this is what you do online in your Facebook, Instagram, I don't even know them all, uh, TikTok, fill in the blank, right? Uh, that's your life. And that, I mean, my mother has endorsed me for Python. I'm pretty sure she thinks <laughs> right now that I'm working on the anti-venom at our Innovative Medicines, which is our old pharma group, right? She has no idea what Python is. Doug no. loves snakes. He yeah, loves snakes. Right? That's what she thinks right now. Like, oh, wow. Uh, he loves snakes and he's working with <laughs> venomous snakes. Should I be dangerous? Should I be worried? And first, they're not venomous. And second of all, it has nothing to do with that stuff, right? So love my mom, but I have to sort of translate things. And uh, what we put in our professional or, or is our personal lives, I don't think should be vetted at all. I, I personally feel very strongly against that because, you know, people do all sorts of things and uh, for different reasons. Yeah, and, and it's, their it's choice. definitely it's a curated uh, collection of things that you're putting out to the world, right? So, if, if the question is like, are organizations getting an accurate representation through their own filter of that person? No, because it's not an accurate representation of that person to begin with. Exactly right. I mean, um, I think we all probably know people who only put the best versions of oh, themselves, yeah. right, on this stuff. Yeah. I take a selfie every Thursday. Post yeah, there it. you I'll, go. I'll, I'll only, only pick the best one, though, right? 
Yeah, Instagrams like food porn, right? That's their entire uh, collection <laughs> is food porn, right? I'm not sure how that's going to help in other than if you're hiring a photographer. But like, seriously, is that really needed? Then you get like sort of like the the weird like uh, mezzo level where like say a person doesn't have like an online presence, is that a red flag to an organization? Like, no, now we don't. Even, this person is just secretive. Well, what you really have to have is your name has to be like Joe Smith, and then that nobody's ever going to be able to find you online <laughs> because there's so many Joe Smiths. Joe Smith, four thousand three hundred ninety-seven. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, yeah, that's me. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like overall, uh, a, a bad idea. Um, uh, is there some value to it for an organization? Like, say, someone has wild things out there. Yeah, maybe like risk mitigation. Yeah, that's probably a good point. If they have a manifesto, we probably don't need. Yeah. Them. Yeah, I mean, when you've got people who write, you know, two paragraphs all about themselves that I'm sure is largely based in generative AI or professional resume writing. Like that may be something where you're like, seriously, is that truly needed? Cause you've got six more scrolls to do to figure out what it is about you. So it, it is a bit like graphology in the sense, like the beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But but there are instances like you you bring up Doug. Like if you had like a candidate and you took him to like a restaurant and like they were really rude to the staff, or like they just like struggled with like a basic decision whether they want like sparkling or stilled water, they like kept everyone waiting. You might be like, I don't know if I can work with this person. Like this is a long time for to make this decision. Like what are you gonna do with an actual decision? I will say. Traveling. I'm not saying it's good science. It's not good science, but I'm saying. I will say traveling with colleagues is probably the best, what I found personally to be the best indicator of, wow, can I actually work with this person like regularly? Yeah. Because, you know, are you able to just realize, you know what? That could be five minutes to stop yeah. at a Starbucks. So Do you I check a bag? Do you yeah. use four wheel oh, yeah. two wheels on your luggage? I know we've gone into this before. So. Right, exactly. Right, like you know, <laughs> did you upgrade using points, or do you already have the status? Right, like these kinds of things are to me important. Right, are you going to prioritize? I yeah. love this. I love this. The airport is the great equalizer because it puts just <laughs> enough cognitive load on you. That like your your true personality has to come out. Having come in from Boston last night, I was laughing. You had people lining up in row one, right? So this is the line one. Everybody oh, yeah, 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 is yeah. in first class. It had to be sixteen plus deep, and I'm like, for a free glass of water or diet coke, are you that excited to get on the airplane? <laughs> They're going to find you a spot for your bag. Don't worry. Come on now. Seriously. Just relax. Take it easy. Have a seat. Listen to some music. Read a book. Oh, wait. Are you talking about people that should not be in the first class line? But like, they're like, you're boarding group eight. It's like, there, there's no, that's, you have no reason to be clogging up this area. Oh, well, that's a special group too. 
that, that that's a whole yeah, other category. I, I mean, the first class folks who still need to get on before, like they could be in row four, but they still need to be right up front to get on first. I'm gonna, I'm gonna defend these people. I'm gonna defend these people. All right, controversy. It, it has to do with the baggage that you brought up because these like plebes that have to sit in like row 35 and beyond, they will put their bag in first class and take up all that stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah. That, well, that's, the, that's the one sort of caveat there. Oh, only if you've got one of the hub uh, fair, I appreciate that. But um, if you're at a hub where you've got, you know, uh, if you fly United, for example, I'm not endorsing United, but if you fly United mm-hmm. and uh, three quarters of the plane are 1K and global service members, I completely agree with you because then you'll have no space whatsoever. Yeah. But if you're not at a regional hub, you're probably going to be in good shape to you're get your bag in. Yeah. And like a pro tip, if you're on the back of the plane, put your bag up front. It's so much easier getting off the plane. Oh my God. (laughs) I always think like, who doesn't do that? Right? Like if you know you're in 26 D just stick it right up by the front. Cause you've got to walk past there anyway to get off. Europe does it right, where like you board and uh, what egress from both the front and right, the back. And the back, yes. Yeah. It's so much easier. What's what's wrong with the people that are getting there early? It's it's just like they're demonstrating their conscientiousness, right? And like, does it even pay off <laughs> to act conscientiously? Cole's leading us into the next actual article here. Well, I mean, do I? F- sure. I mean, I wouldn't arrive to a movie late to your point, but that doesn't mean I want to sit there and watch 82 versions of the same previews before the movie begins, right? I want to balance. Were you a Barbie or Oppenheimer guy, Doug? Oh, Oppenheimer. Oh, interesting. Me too. I like Barbie, but Oppenheimer still was a little better for me. Well, I think we all kind of like conscientiousness at some level. Uh, trait and state conscientiousness uh, positively impacts uh, many life outcomes. So you're talking about your health, job performance, this sort of thing. Uh, but it may be effortful in going against like typical levels of conscientiousness. Like sometimes you need to be more conscientious, like dealing with data, this sort of thing. So this study examines how fluctuations in state consciousness relate to emotional exhaustion, resource depletion, and negative affect. Uh, and the study consists of two studies uh, using uh, ESM methodology. Really cool. So they essentially ping people throughout the day and see how they're doing consciously and, you know, their, uh, all these other outcomes. And what they found is high consciousness uh, relates to lower emotional exhaustion, resource depletion, and negative affect concurrently. So in the same time you're being conscientious, you have uh, these sort of positive outpacks. Uh, the lagged effects are somewhat weaker. So an hour later, which you would expect, you know, they wouldn't be exactly related. But overall, a higher consciousness, even when counter habitual, has positive impact. So the more you sort of practice this sort of stuff and, you know, raise your levels, the better outcomes you have, at least these three outcomes. Yeah. Fake it till you make it, kids. Yeah. Research says so. 100%. You know, if there's one life lesson that I have learned that I've taken with me, is the fact that, you know what? It's really a matter of 
being able to realize that you're going to be uncomfortable a lot. So get comfortable being uncomfortable mm-hmm. and knowing how to thrive and survive in those types of environments. Tremendously powerful, tremendously powerful. Um, that was a big one for me. And conscientiousness to me is a part of that, right? Like you have to be buttoned up. I, I started my career with GE, got my ass kicked in, by, by Jack uh, when he was still around, he was still walking around, and, and believe it or not, in 1999. And, uh, you know, he had some choice words for me, and they were fair because I didn't know the right answers. So if you're not buttoned up, you better plan to be because the next time it's only going to get worse. And as we grow as leaders, as we challenge ourselves, as we challenge our teams, and people want great things, You've got to have everything there and you're going to get better outcomes. Test and learns, right? People are always afraid. Oh my God, what if I fail? You know what you're also going to do? You're going to learn. People forget that aspect, right? Absolutely. I'm not doing the whole Google X, like celebrate every failure. Let's have a big party, (laughs) right? Like, uh, uh, and, and that may be cool, right? But but I am to if you are Google X, I'm not here to do anything about them. But to that end, what matters is everything you try, and as long as you're really focused on doing the best you can, being focused, being conscientious, being aware, being present, being inclusive, all of those things, right? Being ethical, mm-hmm. certainly. Those really matter, and I have to believe drive better outcomes. When I just got my directionally correct bingo because we got a Jack Welch story, so you know I got a straight line on there. Finally, finally got that one tr- crossed off. So well done. Thank. Well, well, little known fact: if you ever read Jack straight from the gut, there's a chapter that talks about his heart attack. And his heart attack. Heart attack, Jack. Uh, heart attack, Jack. Yeah. It's uh, caused by that, me. <laughs> that that would have been true, probably. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, uh, but unfortunately, I was, I was too young at the time. Uh, but his chief medical officer, Saul Millis, was my second great uncle. Okay. Who, who uh, thanks to... Uh, uh, well, I'll just call it luck. How about that? Luck yeah. was helpful in getting me a nice spot in. That's a pre- preparation meets opportunity. That's what yeah. luck is. Oh, I love that. I'm going to use yeah. that too. Shout out to Saul. Well done, Saul. Can, can I make? Can I make just like one quick point about like this conscientiousness? Like, th- there's nothing like as Doug mentioned, like having your house in order, and it's like. Because if if you have messy work and this sort of stuff, that leads to a lot of worry, mm-hmm. and that's that's where a lot of this sort of like ne- negative affect affect comes from, uh, because you didn't take care of things, and therefore things are left up to chance. Uh, there's nothing like feeling squ- being squared away, right? Yeah, closure. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm. You know what feels great knowing that you've maybe not achieved inbox zero, but by the end of the week everything you set out to do every 
thing that you planned to accomplish every email mm-hmm. every aspect of i needed to communicate this yeah. all that stuff is done wow that's a one of my week. favorite radiohead songs everything in its right place i love it <laughs> love it I, I, I strive for a no scroll inbox that, that's my goal always have like no more than say like eight inbox messages that's good it's, it's hard that. to do. It's hard to do. I was going to say, that's not easy, but that's awesome. Well, let's let's hit the last uh, nerdery here, topic here for a second. I think we can do it fast. Um, but Rob Briner points out about understanding leadership from the point of followers. And so one of my criticisms of leadership research for a long time has been it is neglecting the impact of you can't be a leader without having followers. And we don't really study followers very much. And so he actually points out uh, some research from Singapore Management University about the uh, the first really systematic review of followership research. And basically, I mean, not to get into it too deeply, but that followership is important and that there's a lot of different relationships there to leadership. So I wanted to call out Rob for pointing out a really understudied and important point here um, in these researchers from SMU. Um, so I don't know, what do you guys think about, you know, is followership important and, and how have you seen this in your own personal lives? Is, is the question like, uh, is, is followership a skill or I I think it's more of like, how do you cultivate followership if you are a leader? Because definitionally, I don't think you can be a leader without having followers. You can't be a, you can't lead nobody. Yeah. You can't lead nobody. Otherwise, like you're just a lone crazy person. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of organizations talk about like everyone's a leader here and this sort of thing. And like, I think that that is uh, an aspect. People can be a thought leader and like these sort of like sort of these like slice and dice sort of definitions. But if you're going to be like a true like people manager and leading people, then you got to rally the troops behind you. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you're a leader, Doug. What do you think about this? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's about how you as a person are and do you have traits that people are likely to see value in that create that followership uh, mechanism, right? So are you somebody who has a sense of, I have an idea, but I want to make sure people feel like they're part of that journey, right? Like, do you you guys think this is something we should go after, right? I'm going to throw it out there. And you're not being super decisive uh, by saying, this is the only way we're doing it. This is not a dictatorship, right? But you want to establish a leadership presence, and you also want to create people who want to go along a journey with you because you're thinking strategically, you're thinking about big, bold ideas. And you know what, if you don't take a couple of roof shots, let alone a moonshot, then are you really somebody who's going to want to be followed by others? You got to inspire for sure. Well, Scott, what, what, what are you thinking? 
Yeah, well, I mean, like he, Doug's right. This is not a cheerocracy, right? I mean, we, we need to have like some sort of like hands on the wheel and this sort of thing. But I also think like leadership is a skill. It, it, and like any mm-hmm. skill, it needs to be practiced. Like Doug, you brought up some, some sort of things like Stodgill brought up like 1945, like the natural born leader. And to a lot of people, just like drums, just like drums, it comes natural to some people, but you still got to work at it. You still got to read. You still got to practice. You still got to do these sort of things to make yourself even better. I think yeah. we, we don't talk about that nearly enough. When I think like to your points, Doug, the, the thing that I react to is one of the things that leadership researchers really struggle with is that there's no one version of what it means, like those skills and traits that you need to build to be a good leader. And the reality is there's many different kinds of leaders for many different kinds of followers. And I think that's why it's so important to study not just leadership, not just leadership, um, leader member exchange, but also the concept of followership and why that's important. So you're talking about like I, situational leadership, like not, I mean, not, a, to... not even necessarily that. I think that certain traits of leaders are work for certain types of followers, certain traits of leaders work for other types of followers. It's not just the situation. It could even be trait based leadership. Mm-hmm. It, it's just there's different types of traits that inspire different types of people. I mean, let's use the whiplash example earlier. <laughs> uh, dude's a psychopath, but clearly some of the people follow him. And Love other them. leaders, you know, might be much more positive and people would follow them too. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I'm going to give you, a, if you have a second bingo spot for GE, here you go. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Um, I learned very early on at GE that you keep a notebook and you keep this notebook and I still have it. It's in my bag over there. And um, it has now a couple of pages in it, but one page that's devoted to the manager's name and what some great things that this manager did. Mm-hmm. And then, And then you have a different page that's about what are things you would never, ever, ever emulate, would never, ever, ever do from that same manager. Did you yeah. write all this in the airport with that person? Yeah, while you're traveling. I like it. That You know what? <laughs> while sitting next to them. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Uh, Sorry to interrupt your story. No, you know what? I'm just thinking how cool that would have been. Yeah, because really. I'm thinking, oh, I'm thinking he's the four, four wheel bag. I see. Hmm. Yeah, choice. I, I'm thinking about somebody who on a <laughs> Thursday would be like, "I need you to be in India for Monday morning," and that Damn. was not a trait that I ever wanted to emulate. Yeah, as an example, yeah. right? But that time change is rough. Yeah, I mean time change, but like. Like life, like what if you had plans with your family that weekend or you were yeah. going to see a concert or, you know, play a game of golf, oh, yeah. whatever, right? Like, uh, I guess I'm not doing that now. Uh, <laughs> well, this right. is what like, a lot of like call center workers they have to deal with. They don't know their schedule more than a week in advance. And it's a really, really rough life. Yeah, it's not right. It shouldn't be that yeah. way. Exactly. But I but I also appreciate the fact that everyone wants to know what they're playing for. And as leaders, they set that example. 
So being able to recognize that these are the kind of people I want to work for and lead and be a part of. And from a fo- from that thing followership standpoint, like, you know what? This is not how I'm going to jive well. This is not mm-hmm. the, the, right? I think the aspect that you brought, Cole, around these like sectionalized or however it's best phrased is so important because people are going to, people are different. Everybody has a diverse standpoint on how they're best capable of delivering value and growing in their career, or perhaps they don't want to grow. Perhaps they want to stay where they are, but they want to have a great work environment. And I think that's so important as a follower as well. Well, you're clearly a really great leader, Doug, and you've been a fantastic guest on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. But before I give you the final word, uh, Scott, any parting words for Doug? Doug, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Hang in there, man. Things will work out eventually. (laughs) I'll see you in India. You know, maybe we'll see Jack Welch there. Who knows? We could. Uh, it would be kind of strange if we do. Um, but yeah, we. I could see in India. Let's put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I'll have Jack Well stories for you. Yeah. That's good. Doug, you've been fantastic. Thank, thank you so much for joining us today. And you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and Doug Shagham. Thanks, Doug. Thank you both. Cole, Scott, pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and what a privilege it's been. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.